0: I would, we're going to start with 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, so I would invite you to um, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, And if you don't have a Bible with you, I'm sure there's going to be one um, nearby. I see them coming around handing out Bibles. Um, It will help to look at the passage this morning. Um, And if you would stand with me as we read God's Word, Um, we'll do that. Verses 3 through 9. Um, and actually, we're going to be looking at most of the first chapter, but I'm just going to be reading verses 3 through 9, 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. of your souls, Let's pray together. Father, I ask that your word would speak to us this morning, uh, that we would see beautiful things in your word, and that when we do, that we wouldn't be people that are merely informed, but that through the renewal of our minds, our hearts would be transformed and our lives would be transformed so that we can live out the gospel in our lives, and so that we can learn what it means to be a covenant, gospel-centered community here at Connection Church. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, So we started with this passage in 1 Peter this morning, um, but I should warn you, um, we're going to be going to several different places in the Bible this morning, um, and really there's a theme that I want us to Think about this morning. Um, It's really an ancient theme, an ancient idea, an ancient practice um, called covenant relationships. Um, So, if you're not familiar with this word covenant, um, that's fine if you maybe have some sort of a church background. Maybe you've heard that in church before. If you read the Old Testament, um, you've heard something about covenants. Um, But this is an ancient practice, an ancient idea um, to commit to each other in covenant relationships. And we're going to look at that theme this morning. Um, and as we do, um, you heard in my prayer that my, my goal and my prayer for us is not uh, simply that we would learn more about the Bible. My goal with our time together is not that we would be people who are merely informed, but that through the information that we get, through God's word, that it would get down to our heart, that it would transform the way that we feel, that it would transform our, our character, so that we would live lives that are honoring to God, pleasing to God, and that we are sacrificial to one another. Um, So that's my hope. That's what I'm praying for. And so that's what um, I'm really just anticipating that the Holy Spirit will do for us this morning. Um, Now, I should also say, uh, before we jump into the text this morning, um, if you paid attention or if you're looking back through your text right now, if I say the theme that we're going to be looking at is covenant relationships, you might notice that the word covenant never showed up in the passage that we just read. Um, And that's okay because the idea of covenant is Is in this text. But to see that, I want to first uh, give us a little bit of background um, to where this idea of covenant came from. Um, And to do that, um, we're going to have to think about specifically the Jewish background, the Jewish faith. Um, So Christianity began began as an early Jewish movement. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, Um, he was the Jewish Messiah, and the disciples that he called were all Jewish followers. And so they had this Jewish faith where they were anticipating a God that would be their God, they would be his people, they would be in a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and they would have a flourishing, abundant life through God, through his promises. And they were anticipating a Messiah that would come, And at that time, when Jesus came, deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. Um, So the Jewish people at this time were under the oppression of the Roman army, the Roman Empire, and they were hoping that someone would rise up and deliver them from that. And Jesus comes, and as we'll see in a moment, Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of that, but there's going to be a significant plot twist at the same time. And to understand the plot twist, we have to know what this covenant was all about. So the Jewish covenant goes back to a man named Abram. God made this covenant with this man named Abram. And what you need to know that in the Jewish faith, this covenant was central to everything about them. But at the same time, this covenant was not unique to Israel. So if you were living in the ancient Near East or in the time that the Old Testament was being written, in that culture, there were many cultures who had covenant-like relationships. And these covenant relationships usually involved some sort of ceremony that got them into the covenant. So it would be something like this. Let's say for a moment that I was a king living in the ancient Near East, and you were part of my kingdom. And we would enter into a covenant relationship with one another. And there would be a ceremony, and this is strange for us living in um, South, South Dakota in 2018, Uh, But we would enter into this relationship, and it would start with gathering some animals. We'd probably get some cows, we'd get some pigeons, some turtle doves. We would cut them in half. And what we would do is we would make a walkway with the pieces. And so we would put half the pieces of the animals right here. We would put half of the pieces of the animal right here. And then we would make a covenant where, if I were the king, I would walk halfway through the walkway. And then you would send a representative to walk halfway through the walkway And then we would make a verbal commitment to one another in front of everyone. And I might say something like this, I promise to be your king, I promise to be a faithful king, to watch over you, to make sure that you're safe, to make sure that you're protected, so that you could live in a land full of prosperity. That's my covenant to you. And then you would make a covenant with me, a verbal covenant with me saying we promise to be your people, to submit to your laws. For the good of the kingdom. And we'd make this covenant during this ceremony, this dramatic ceremony. And what the ceremony symbolizes is that if I break my end of the deal, if I go back on my word, what I'm saying during this ceremony is let me be divided into like these animals. And what you're saying is that if you don't keep your end of the deal, you will be divided into like these animals. It's a very dramatic ceremony, and it points to something really profound about covenants. Covenants are to be taken seriously. You don't go back on them. It's a matter of life and death. And so this is a practice that happened in the ancient Near East. And Israel is a culture, Israel is a faith community, Israel is a nation. God's chosen people that began with a covenant that was sort of like this. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 15 and I'd recommend doing that later. Um, I'm going to mention some of it now so if you want to open your Bibles later you can. Uh, But that started with a guy named Abram who became Abraham and God begins a covenant with him. And this is what we read in Genesis chapter 15. So the word of the Lord comes to Abram and God says to him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. So he's given Abram a promise, you're going to have great reward. But Abram says to God, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, which evidently isn't a good thing. I don't want him to be my heir. But then the Lord says to him, fear not, don't worry, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And then he takes him outside and he says, look toward the heaven. Try to count the stars if you're able to. Can't do it. And God makes this promise, so shall your offspring be. You can't even count them. That's how many offspring you're going to have. And then God says, do you see this land right here? This will be your land. I'm going to give it to you to possess. And what, what God is saying to Abram is I'm going to make you and your family a great nation. It's a promise that God has given to Abram. And then Abram responds to God, but O oh Lord God, how am I to know? How am I to know that I shall possess it? How will I know that you're going to be faithful to your word? And then God says something that is really strange. And I I remember the first time that I read the Bible. and Some of you have maybe had this experience. I still have this experience, by the way, where you read something and you think, that makes no sense to me. I have no idea what I just read. I don't know what this is all about. Um, and, And I remember the first time that I read the Bible... I did what seemed logical, I became a new Christian, and you just start at the beginning, right, and Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so you just start reading, and then you should learn everything, but then you get to something like Genesis chapter 15, and Abram says to God, how do I know you're going to keep your promise to me, and this is what God says back. He says, bring me a heifer, three years old. Okay, then what? Then get me a female goat, three years old okay then then what else give me a ram three years old grab a turtle dove on the way and then get a young pigeon now can you see why a new christian reading this for the first time is wondering how in the world is that an answer he just asks, how in the world am i supposed to know that you're going to fulfill this promise and he starts calling out the barn animals what does this have to do with anything Well, Abram would have known what was going on here. Anyone who was reading this for the first time in the ancient Near East would have known what was going on. What he's saying is, let's enter into a covenant. Grab the pieces, cut them in two, line them up. We're going to do this thing. And then something really strange happens with, with Abram. Abram falls asleep. I mean, that happens all the time. We all sleep. But here's what's really strange. He falls asleep during the covenant ceremony. And while he's sleeping, what we read is that a torch passes through the pieces. What's the torch? Torch is fire. And there's a lot of imagery in the Old Testament where the fire refers to God. God shows up in a burning bush, remember that? So the torch, God, passes through the pieces. What does that mean? It's incredible. Well, here's what I think it means. When God passes his half through the pieces, essentially what God is saying is, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I will be your shield. I will be the one that will protect you. You're going to have many offspring. And through your your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is a covenant that God makes with Abram. And I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, and if I don't keep my end of the deal, God is saying, let me be divided in two like these pieces. It's like any king would do. But God doesn't stop there. God also goes Abram's half while he is sleeping. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that God is essentially saying, if you don't keep your end of the deal, you're not going to be the one that's divided in two, like these pieces. I will be divided in two. Now this is a huge, huge problem. Because we know that God can keep his end of the bargain. He's God. But we've read the rest of the story. We know that Abram screws up, We know that everyone else in the Old Testament screws up, all of Israel screws up, over and over and over. And this is the theme of the Old Testament, is they screw up. They don't keep their end of the bargain. So now how is God going to be divided in two? How could that happen? Well, let's go to 1 Peter. We're going to give an answer to that in a moment. But here's what I want you to see in 1 Peter. So let's look at verse 3 for a moment. Look at the text. Here's where I think covenant shows up. Verse 3, Peter writes, God caused us to be born again. It might be good if you like doing the the underlining thing, if if it's your Bible, um, I would recommend maybe highlighting this. But notice it says, God caused us to be born again. Birth is not something that you do. When I was born, I had nothing to do with it. It happened to me. My parents caused me to be born. And, and what we see here is that God has this imagery of this new birth. God caused you to be born again to something, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to just point out a few different things here. So, number one, the covenant that God makes with Abram is a covenant that has to deal with physical descendants. So the way that you become part of God's covenant family in the Old Testament is by coming from the line of Abram. If you're an offspring of Abram, you're part of the covenant family. So you become part of the covenant family through birth. That's how the covenant is passed on. Well, now, how do we get the covenant post-Jesus, after the New Testament is written? How do we get the covenant? We get the covenant not through physical birth, but through new birth that God causes to happen in us. And so we become part of God's covenant people through the new birth. I also want to point out that since Peter writes, God caused us to be born again, that this is not something that we do. This is something that God does. It's not contingent upon our works. It's not contingent upon our efforts. This is a work of God through the Holy Spirit. And I want to also point out that it's too a living hope. A living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's incredibly significant because this living hope is building upon the hope that God gave to Abram. So Abram is given this promise, you will be my people. Uh, I, I will give you this land flowing with milk and honey. You'll be a great nation. Well, for us, we're waiting for a kingdom. When does that kingdom come? We we were singing about a kingdom. When does this kingdom come? Well, it came in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That was when the kingdom began. When Jesus rose from the dead, new creation began. A new kingdom was established with the resurrection of Jesus. And so sometimes theologians will say that we are in this period right now where we're already in the kingdom, but we're not yet in the kingdom. We're already in the kingdom because Jesus is is literally king here right now in in South Dakota, in the United States, in the world, everywhere, Jesus is king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. We are in a new creation, but we also know that this creation is broken, so it's not yet fully consummated. So we're in this already not yet. The creation is here, and, and we have this hope that everything that's screwed up now will be restored in the resurrection. So God causes you to be part of that kingdom, born into that kingdom, and that gives you hope for a new creation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Peter continues in verse 6, in this you rejoice. So we have this hope that there's going to be new creation. We can rejoice. We can celebrate because Jesus has won. Jesus is king. That's good news. Even though it doesn't seem like that, he's got this thing in control. But he continues. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's saying, if necessary, you're rejoicing, Jesus is king, this is great, Jesus has been raised from the dead. But if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why would there be trials if Jesus is king? Well, Peter tells us, so that. Anytime you see words like that, you should circle it and think. Just spend some time thinking. What, what, what are the connections going on here? You are grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, you can skip down just a little bit, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Peter is saying, you experience trials so that The tested genuineness of your faith may result in praise. Now, this brings up another confusing thing. This used to be confusing for me. I feel like I've got more of an understanding of it now than what I did before. But I I used to be troubled by God using trials as a test for us. Why would God need to test us? I don't get that. God is omniscient. God knows everything. If my faith is genuine, God knows whether my faith is genuine. Why do I need to go through a trial to demonstrate to God that my faith is genuine? Um, Well, there's two answers to that. The first one is I don't think God has us go through trials to demonstrate to him that we're faithful and that it results in praise. I think it's more for us. And actually, the second part of that answer is what I think is going on in the rest of this first chapter of 1 Peter. Um, So let me ask you a question for a moment. Um, So we could ask, how do you know that your faith is genuine? But I want to ask the question a little bit differently. How do you know whether or not someone loves you? How do you know that? Or you could make the question a little more personal. How do you know whether or not you love someone else? What indicator would you have to demonstrate to yourself that you authentically and deeply love them and care about them? Well, one of the profound ways, most profound ways that I know of to know this is to go through a trial with that person. Because when you go through a trial, that's when you figure out whether or not you're going to stick with the relationship. Because at the beginning of most relationships, whether it's a marriage relationship, uh, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a job. I mean, a job is sort of like a relationship. You enter into a relationship with your employer, and you're trying to figure out whether you like it here. Whether it's a relationship with the church, usually what happens at the beginning of the relationship is both people are putting their best foots forward. Um, And you're kind of trying to sell yourself to the other person, right? Uh, My wife, Becky, and I have been married for Uh, over 11 years now. And I still remember the first day that we met. Uh, We met at a Bible study. Uh, It was at SDSU. We were in college ministry. Um, I was actually leading the Bible study, and we had uh, a Bible study where we went through the tough questions of Christianity. Um, That was the focus of this study. Um, We usually had the same crowd every time, uh, very much an intellectual-type Bible study. Um, And one week, I showed up, sat down, getting ready to lead the Bible study, and there was someone new, and she was really cute. Her name was Becky. And I noticed that she's really cute, but I have to lead the Bible study, so I need to focus on the material right now. But then something happened. Uh, During our discussion, I can't even remember exactly what the discussion was. I think it was probably something related to the problem of evil, if I remember right. She would probably remember. But I asked a question, and Becky responded to the question, And in her response, she quoted scripture, and she even quoted a theologian. (laughs) I'm like, she's cute, and she knows her Bible, and she's smart, and it was just over from there. (laughs) And let me tell you, for the next, maybe year, she was perfect. And for the next year... Maybe a little more. I can't remember the exact time. I was perfect. I was perfectly charming. I was perfectly funny. I mean, everything I said that was a joke, she laughed at. Her laugh was amazing. And she would laugh at everything that I said that was intended. Sometimes I wasn't intended to be funny, and she would laugh, and I would still like it because she just thought I was a funny guy. She thought I was romantic. I mean, I was perfect. Now, here's what's interesting we've been married for 11 years now. And there's a weird thing that happens after 11 years because I know that I'm more mature now than what I was 11 years ago. I know that I have a a deeper faith now than what I have had 11 years ago. Um, In fact, I can go back and read some old journal articles of mine. I can go back and read some old emails and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I was so dumb. I can't believe I was thinking that back then. I know I've grown up a ton in the last 11 years. And what's weird about that is if you were to ask Becky, so if I had her up here right now, and you were to ask, is Mike perfect? She would laugh at you for even asking the question. Isn't that strange? Because I really do think I'm more mature in Christ now than what I was then, but then she thought I was perfect. Then I thought she was perfect. And now we've been married for 11 years, and we know, we know you're not perfect. You have a long ways to go. It'll probably happen in the resurrection, but it's not going to happen here on earth. And and so what's going to keep us going? And actually, when that happens, trials happen, right? That's how you find out someone's not perfect. Um, And trials can happen in a number of different ways. It could be a very um, traumatic, life-changing trial where you have a death of a family member. Maybe you have a death of a child and you have to go through that together, that can be a very gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching thing to go through with someone. Um, but there, there are other things, too, that are also trials that, that are not so severe, if you just look at it objectively. Uh, so it could be something like, uh, so let me just think of something that's happened recently. So we have our third child now. Um, our first two ch- children slept through the night like almost right away. It just seemed like we didn't lose a whole lot of sleep, that was great. Third child hasn't been that way. And so we'll notice this with each other right now, and we we notice that we can actually annoy each other doing this when Alistair wakes up in the middle of the night. uh, I'm tempted to pretend like I'm still sleeping so that Becky will go get Alistair. She's tempted to do the same thing. And we know that we're both playing this game with each other and we're annoying each other and we're not trying to outdo one another and showing honor to each other, right? That's not what we're doing. And we're revealing our sin to each other and that does something. That's a trial that you're going through when you realize they're not perfect. The thing that I thought was cute before now is annoying. Um, They're not perfect. How do you get through that? Well, the way most of us do it is we begin our friendship putting our best foot forward trying to look as perfect as we can we're trying to not put the other person through a trial but then when the trials come we we question whether or not this is what we should be doing now here's what I want you to notice with first Peter here's what I want you to think about when it comes to the gospel and to the covenant relationship that God enters with us God enters into a covenant relationship starting with the trial you ever thought about that? When God enters into this covenant with us, it begins with him suffering. That's how your relationship is established with him. So, so it's not we both put our best foot forwards, we're perfect, oh we have these tingly butterflies in our stomach and now we're, this is just going to happen forever. God begins with suffering and you see this in verse 10. So look at verse 10 for a moment. So, so he says, concerning the salvation, this restored relationship with God, concerning this salvation, Peter writes, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted, now underline this, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the subsequent glories. Peter is pointing out that there were prophets in the Old Testament that prophesied about Christ, and Christ is just another word for Messiah, Messiah that would be coming, and this Messiah predicted his suffering. Now, whenever you see something like this in the New Testament that's alluding to something in the Old Testament, you should try really hard to figure out, where is this coming from? Because when you ask the question, when did the Christ predict that he would suffer, or when did any prophet predict that the Christ would suffer? When did that happen? And what I'll tell you is most of the Old Testament is saying the exact opposite of this. In the first century Greco-Roman world, when Jesus arrives on the scene, Jesus was not the first person that people thought was the Messiah. There were people that came before him, there were people that came after him, claiming to be the Messiah. In every case, the Jews living in Jesus' day were thinking, when the Messiah comes, this means a battle is about to begin. When a Messiah gathers up disciples, that's the beginning of an army. And they are going to overthrow Rome. That's what's going to happen. And when we overthrow Rome, we're going to get our land. This will be our land flowing with milk and honey. God is going to be our God. We're going to be his people. And then all the nations will be blessed as a result of that. That's what people were expecting. And this is consistent with what you find over and over in the Old Testament. This is Moses leading the people out of captivity and against all odds conquering the Egyptian army Because God is with them. Obviously, they had a lot of help. Got part of the Red Sea, swallowed them up. When God's with you, you can do impossible things. This is David conquering Goliath. This isn't supposed to happen, but when God is with you, it happens. This is Joshua driving out the Canaanites. Even though when the spies went into the land, they said they're really big, and they're strong, and they're fortified, we'll probably lose. Yet when God is with you, amazing things happen this is Gideon defeating the Midianites with a very small army, or Samson defeating a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. That doesn't just happen. If it happens, God is with you. So, so people who were saying this guy's the Messiah in the first century Greco Roman world, they knew it's gonna be a David like warrior. Yes, Rome is big and they're powerful, but when God is with us, we can defeat them with a jawbone. Because God is that big. That was what they were expecting, but Peter is pointing to something else. He's not pointing to that conquest. He's saying in the Old Testament, there are prophets that are suggesting something more like a suffering servant. Where is that found? Well, Isaiah 53 is a good place to go. It talks about one who will be coming, who will be pierced for our transgressions. You've probably heard this before. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. He will heal us by his wounds. Note, not by the sword. He heals us by his wounds, by having harm inflicted upon him. He will heal us. He will be oppressed and afflicted. He'll be led to the slaughter like a lamb and he will lay in the grave with the wicked and although he had done no violence there was no deceit in his mouth he will lay in that grave and then the prophet concludes Isaiah 53 11 out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous one shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteousness, righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So there is in the Old Testament, even though you have a lot of conquering kings, a lot of conquering Messiah-type figures, you do have this one who is being anticipated to be a suffering servant. But now if we ask, who is that suffering servant? I think we've got to go back to the covenant that God makes with Abram if you don't complete your end of the deal it's not going to be you on the line it's going to be me when could God ever be divided in two on the cross Jesus is the second person of the Trinity Jesus is God when so Abram's asking how do I know you're going to keep your promise Well, if you don't fulfill your end of the deal, I'm going to be divided in two and the kingdom will be established anyway. It doesn't matter whether or not you fulfill your end of the bargain or not. This is going to happen. And what we know later is that Abram tries to take things into his own hands. Um, He uh, sleeps with um, Hagar instead of his wife um, because he thinks maybe this is how it's going to happen. I mean, that's what we're always tempted to do. Like, I need to make this happen. That's just not how God does it. I made the promise, and even if you're not faithful, I'll be divided into on the cross. So God enters into this relationship, and it begins with the trial. God says to us, I don't love you because you're perfect. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm going into this knowing every deep flaw about you. Um, I know all the different ways that you've hurt other people. And I'm entering into this covenant relationship with you. How do you know that relationship's going to last? Because it began with the trial, and he went through it. And for the joy set before him, he endured that trial. That's how you know that love is established. Well, now, what does this have to do with us? And I'm going to have to skip ahead uh, just a little bit here. Um, How does this make any difference? In our lives, that God entered into a covenant with us, and that covenant began with the trial. Well, one way that I think it matters is that it it actually becomes the model for how we are to love one another here in the church. Um, It's the model for how we are to love one another in our marriages. It's the model for how we're to love friends, and how we're to love family, and how we're to love people who are outside the church. The same way that God loved you, that's how you're called to love each other. And we see this in verse 22. So having purified your souls, and this comes through faith in the gospel, this comes through recognizing the covenant that God has with you, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again, because this happened to you, Now love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Do you see the the logic that Paul is getting at here or that Peter is getting at here? Peter is saying we are to love one another. Why are we to love one another? Well, because God caused us to be born again. That's the why, and that's also the how. Because God caused you to be born again, because of that, you are to love one another. And, and how did God do that? God did it through suffering. God began it with suffering. And so this becomes a, a great model for the way that we love one another, because when trials come in our lives, we know that that's never an excuse to ditch the relationship. Because if it were, that's God would have just ditched the relationship with us before we even began it. But the gospel tells us something different than what we naturally feel and think. See, we naturally feel and think, as long as everything's perfect, as long as I have the butterflies in my stomach, as long as this church fills all my needs, and, and we say these weird things in Christian-y circles, like, as long as I get fed... This is a weird thing, right? Like, I don't know where that shows up in the Bible. Just get fed. I mean, there's the feeding the sheep. But as long as I just sit in the pews and I get fed, then I'll be a part of that. That's not the way that God entered the relationship with you. As long as they just feed me. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's how relationships work. If you want salvation in your marriage, in your relationships, in church life, It's not about other people laying down their life for you. It's about how Jesus laid down his life for you. And if you believe that gospel, if you believe that the way that God restored his relationship with you, how he entered into the covenant with you, then you have the power of God for salvation in your relationships with one another and everything else. That's how the gospel works. That's the imperishable seed that Peter's talking about here. Now, what are some perishable seeds? There's a lot of horrible perishable seeds out there. I talk with people all the time that are believing false gospels. I want someone in a marriage who can satisfy my ever need, all my needs and never try to change me. Sounds very romantic. Someone who will never try to change me. It's a horrible, perishable seed to build a relationship on. Someone who's never gonna try to change you, like you're so perfect that you don't need to be changed. Like, there's nothing wrong with you whatsoever, so nobody should ever try to change you. That's so weird, but we buy into this stuff. That's not going to make any relationship ever work. It's not going to make a church work. I want a church that never tries to change me. No, that's the point. The point is we're sinful people who need to change through the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what church, like, that's why we gather together. Jesus says at one point, And and we like to quote this one a lot because we, judgment, we don't like judging each other, right? Um, He says, don't try to take out the speck in your brother's eye until you first take out this big log in your eye. Um, But first take out that log so that you can clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. And so we think, okay, good. Let's not judge one another. Well, close. But here's what I think the point of that passage is. You have a big log in your eye. I have a big log in my eye, and the more we get to know one another, the more you'll see. Now, for you, it'll be a speck, but you can see that it's there, but it really is a log. And you'll be able to see it clearly, the more we get to know one another, the more you get to know your spouse. This is why, after 11 years of marriage, we know we're not perfect anymore, because we see every speck in each other's eye. I can predict when a speck is coming. I, like We're good at that. And so how do you do that well? The way gospel-centered relationships work is, is you say, I know I've got sin in my life. There's some sin in my life that I know about right now. There's some sin in my life that I don't know about, but you do know about. Can you help me? So you just invite the person, please take all the logs and specks out of my eyes that you see. I need that because I want my life to look more like Jesus. Can you help me? And then when you do that, when you invite that in, what I've noticed a lot of times is that it goes both ways. Then they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I've been sinning against you lately. Can you help me too? So trying to build off of this perishable seed called, I want a place that never tries to change me, that's just so weird. That means you never, never are going to grow. You think you've arrived, and, and that's just not going to work. Or loneliness... Like, I get loneliness as a real thing. I've had points in my life where where I've felt deeply, deeply lonely. And so I want to start friendships with people to overcome this deep loneliness that I have. That's also a perishable seed, and it will never work. Um, If you try to build a relationship to fulfill your loneliness, uh, you'll end up making the person or the people that you're trying to fulfill that gap with you'll end up making them God and they won't appreciate that and they'll feel like I can't satisfy you with everything and then the relationship will fall apart. There are tons of perishable seeds and Peter says don't build your relationships, don't build your covenant love with each other on perishable seeds, build it on the gospel. Build it on the good news that God unconditionally entered into a loving relationship with me, knowing full well that I'm a sinner, that I'm deeply broken and deeply flawed, but the good news is he, he loves me and he's not going to keep me there. That's the hope for salvation and these are relationships that are worth living and dying for and it's all centered on the gospel. I want to pray for us now Um Because I know that if we just see this truth and we don't have God through the Spirit reaching into our heart and changing us, I know that it's just going to fall and not do anything. So we need to pray together. I invite you to pray with me that God would just um, cause us to be gospel-centered, covenant-centered people. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you loved us and you didn't love us because we first loved you. You loved us in spite of our brokenness and our sin. You entered into a covenant with us and you promised that you would never leave us or forsake us. Um, And Father, I pray that we would believe that So many of the problems in our life come when we confess that with our mouth, but we really don't believe it in our heart. So I pray that your spirit now would reach in our heart, cause us to believe your gospel. If there are damaged friendships, relationships in this room, um, I pray that your gospel would restore it. Uh, I pray that you'd be convicting all of our hearts, um, that you'd give us each a desire to become conformed more into the image of your son. And God, I pray that you would build this church on the rock of your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.